Good morning, everyone. Please join me in prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may hear your word with joy and that we may recognize what you put before us, not as interruptions or distractions, but instead as opportunity to live in your name, in your love, and in your light. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out of me. Then the woman, seeing that she could no longer go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Zach. Zach and I did not compare notes. I didn't send you my sermon in advance, but your prayer was my sermon. So, um, amen. Go in peace. We are spending the month of May considering uh, God's unhurried kingdom. And every so often over the past year or so, we've taken a month and considered different countercultural aspects of God's kingdom, ways that God tells us to live and ways that God is that seem to fly in the face of the world around us. And this month, we're thinking about God's unhurried kingdom. And I don't think I have to build up a whole case. Like, we all understand that an unhurried life would be radically countercultural. The more I think about it, the more I realize how hurry infects every part of life, doesn't it? So just this morning, and I've been thinking, you know, I mean, it's it's the weekend, Sunday's coming, my, my brain is just purely, like, sermon. So I'm thinking unhurried life. And just this morning, I'm on the way out the door, and Elliot, our oldest daughter, asks me, Daddy! Do you want to hear something cool? 
And if I was being completely honest in that moment, I would have told her, no. I want to get out the door because I'm on the way to work and I've got a lot on my mind and a lot to do. And, and my, so my, my false self just wanted to go. I was in a hurry. And I couldn't even bear what I knew would probably only be a 15 or 30 second interruption. But because I've been thinking and preaching about hurry and about patience and an unhurried life, I forced myself kind of through gritted teeth to say, yes, I would love to hear something cool and listen as she told me about this obscure bug that, that lives in moss. And I, I, don't, I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> if you ask her after the service, she'll tell you about it. I'm not immune from it either. Our lives and our world are so busy that we can't bear even a 15-second interruption to our hectic pace. And it's true across the board. I've, I've noticed, you know, we, um, we always like to look back on our lives and think how easy we had it back then, but the perception is really no different. Like whether you're, whether you're a college student or whether you're in your 30s or whether in your 60s or whether in your 80s, life feels fast, doesn't it? Across the board, this is, this is part of all of our lives. And yet God, in the middle of that, invites us to live a counterculturally unhurried life because his kingdom is an unhurried kingdom. And every morning we pray, or every Sunday morning we pray, and we'll pray this at the end of the sermon again today, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's kingdom is an unhurried place and he invites us to live now like we will live for eternity, then what's the rush? Now, our goal this morning, we're going um, to think about this one account in Jesus' life. And we're specifically going to look at Jesus' willingness not only to be unhurried, but to be interrupted. Because that's probably, that's at least one of my pet peeves and probably one of all of our pet peeves is to be interrupted when our brain and our mind and our actions, we're going this way and something comes in and steals our focus. It distracts us. And this morning, instead of teaching of at the end, I'll, I'll try to synthesize things and draw things together, but, but I really want to spend more time just sitting in Luke and turning over stones and looking behind corners and seeing what is going on. In other words, the goal this morning, and really it should be the goal whenever we read scripture, it's less to inform us and it's more to transform us. You know, so often we think that if I can just get more information, if I can just learn more about the Bible, if I can just learn more about, if I can just understand God, then I'll be okay. And, and ironically, like the more you learn about God, the more you realize how little you know about God. And you start to understand that the goal is not information, the goal is transformation. It's not how much you know it's about becoming like Christ. Teachers know this, by the way. Every teacher will tell you more is caught than taught in so many life settings. So this morning, we're going to let Jesus teach us didactically a little bit, but as much as we're hoping to be taught, we're just hoping to catch some of who Jesus is. And if we catch just a whiff about who Jesus is through this incident, it, I think it will transform us. We're going to imagine ourselves in this scenario and ask, who, who is this Jesus? 
And if we follow him, who do we become? So we're going to walk very slowly through this story that Luke weaves this morning and just stop and notice and pay attention at certain key points. It begins with Jairus. Now Jairus, we don't know a whole lot about him. He's a ruler of the synagogue. We're not even completely sure what that title means. In all likelihood, he's kind of a, he's, a, he's like a non-paid lay volunteer. He's very involved, like some of you are very involved in church stuff. But he's not an official, you know, he's not a priest. But he has some leadership role. And Jairus comes and hears that Jesus is in town. And scripture tells us, Luke tells us, he pleaded with Jesus to come to his house. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, if you're a parent, you know you would do anything for your kids. And if one of your kids is dying, there is nothing you won't do, right? Nothing. Now, Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He's, he's got a position of leadership. People know him. He knows people. He probably knows a lot of people. He probably knows some doctors, some physicians who come to the synagogue and they have interactions and because they're generous givers, they kind of have an extra in with him and he with them. And maybe he's even asked these physicians to come take a look at my daughter. There's something not right with her. And maybe they've come and maybe they've looked at her and examined her and maybe they've tried and maybe they've tried everything and nothing has worked. And he's slowly losing hope, but he will not give up. And so respectable Jairus, church leader Jairus, in this last-ditch effort, willing to do anything, goes looking for a miracle. If, um, if, you're, not, if you're in a position in life where you're not desperate, then a miracle is kind of far-fetched. It seems kind of silly. Like, why don't you start with something more reasonable? But if you are desperate, you'll take anything. You will grasp at any straw. Jesus is in town. It just so happens that Jesus has a reputation for healing people. It just so happens that Jesus is right there and Jairus probably figures, it can't hurt. And he approaches Jesus and he pleads with Jesus to heal his daughter and Jesus says, yes, I'll come. How's Jairus feeling in that moment? Probably conflicted, probably a little bit skeptical still, but probably very hopeful. I mean, it can't hurt, right? So Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. And remember, Jairus' daughter doesn't have the flu. She's, she's dying. Which means every, when somebody's dying, you know this, every second counts. You don't stop for a coffee break. A lot of you are nurses. You have been in situation, and a couple of you are physicians too. Like if you're in the medical profession, you understand if somebody's dying, you don't get to stop and take lunch. You get there right now and do everything it takes. Every second counts here. But the crowds are so thick. Luke tells us the crowds are so thick, they're almost crushing Jesus. 
How's Jairus feeling? You ever been in a crunch, like a really time sensitive, and it's really important? How do you feel? I mean, this is much lighter, but how do you feel when you absolutely have to get somewhere, you're late for an appointment, and the driver in front of you has an opening to make that left-hand turn and waits? Come on, right? How do you feel like you've, when you've got to get out of the store, and, and again, you've got to get out as quick as possible, you've got to ki- pick your kid up and take him to whatever, and you're in line, and the person in the checkout line in front of you realizes, ah, shoot, I forgot something. And the cashier pauses and lets them go. The injustice. We hate interruptions, don't we? How does Jairus feel? Jesus just said he was going to come, and Jairus is desperate. And now the crowd is crushing around him, not even permitting him to move. And instead of lowering his shoulder and like pushing his way through the crowd, then Jesus stops. And he asks, I can't think of a polite word, the blankest question imaginable in a crowd where you're getting crushed Who touched me? Really? And another woman, clearly down on her luck, can barely even look up and make eye contact with Jesus. Maybe she doesn't. And Jesus stops and has a conversation with her. How's Jairus feeling right now? She's, well, she got healed even before she was healed. Like, she was still alive. You don't have to stop and talk to her. Like, come, this is more important. And I know I'm biased and I know it's my kid, but come on. Somebody who's, who's just got a, a sickness, but they're not dying, and my daughter is dying. And yet Jesus will not be rushed. Who is this Jesus? How's Jairus feeling? Press pause. Scene change. Same scene, actually. The camera just rotates to the other side of the seating scene. How's the, how's the woman feeling? The woman who's just been healed? We don't know much about her either. She's been bleeding for 12 years, some sort of a hemorrhage. She's used to being overlooked. She probably can't remember the last time she felt seen. Everybody tries to look the other way. In fact, it's been so long that she, she, maybe she prefers now to just be unnoticed. Not that, not that in a corner of her mind she wouldn't like to be seen and noticed, but it's so foreign and it's been so long and it would be so intense. I just can't even handle that. At least I know what this kind of pain feels like. I don't know what that. And the thought of somebody seeing her and really like seeing her for who she is with this torturous condition, it's, it's too much. 
It's complete emotional overload. She can't even handle it. And so as much as it hurts to not be seen, it beats being seen for who she is. And somehow, again, there's a crowd, and it's easy to go unnoticed, and she's used to being unnoticed, and she's used to kind of sneaking around unnoticed, and so she just kind of works her way up and brushes the hem of Jesus' cloak, Scripture tells us, and immediately her best dreams and her worst fears are realized all at once. Immediately, Luke says. Usually that's a word that Mark uses, but Luke uses it here too. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. She's healed. Her best dream. And then her worst fear. Because this Jesus stops and sees and notices. And he asks, who touched me? And Peter, being Peter, goes, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Who, Who touched me? Really? And the woman probably breathes a half sigh of relief. Ah, Peter to the rescue. Thank God. Maybe Peter Peter will talk some sense into Jesus and they'll keep going. But Jesus said, verse 46, no, 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 no. Someone touched me. I know, I sense, power has gone out from me. Verse 47, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, side note, as bad as she probably wanted to, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling, hands shaking, voice wavering, and fell at Jesus' feet. And in the presence of all the people, All their eyes now firmly fixed on her. She told why she had touched Jesus and how she had been instantly healed. And Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. There's so much going on here too. She's, for 12 years, she has gotten used to being overlooked and unnoticed. And now she is seen. For 12 years she has been sick. And now she's healed. For 12 years, according to Jewish ceremonial law, she has been unclean. And now she is clean. For 12 years she's been living in hell. And now in an instant, what feels to her like Heaven on earth, I imagine. (laughs) How do you think she's feeling? How's Jairus feeling? Remember Jairus? The woman's world just went from hell to heaven, and yet Jairus' world is devolving from heaven to hell Because for 12 years he has loved and devoted himself to his only daughter. And Jesus agreed to help. You said you would come and then you stopped. And he dragged his feet and he let this other woman sideline him, whoever she is. And now Jairus' world is a living hell. Because while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, this is verse 49, someone came from the house of Jairus 
the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. How's Jairus feeling? And hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just trust. I know the text, most of your Bibles probably say believe. It's the same word in Greek for believe and trust, for faith and trust. Just trust. How's Jairus feeling? And Jairus knows as well as anybody. We moderns know it, and the ancient people, people in the ancient world knew this just as well as we do. We are no smarter than they are. People who are dead are dead. Dead people do not come back to life. It doesn't happen. And now everything is supposed to magically get better because Jesus, this guy who, who dragged his feet, just says, I just trust me, it'll be okay. That's supposed to make everything better? I mean, it, sound, it sounds foolish to our ears, which is why Jesus makes his way to the girl and then he sees her and he says, she's not dead, she's only asleep. And everybody laughs at him. Did you notice that? Everybody laughs at Jesus. It's foolish because dead people don't come back to life. We all know that. And Jesus, unfazed, kicks everybody else out except for Jairus and Jairus' wife and a couple of his closest followers. And he says to the girl, he takes her by the hand and he says, get up. And she does. (laughs) Once she stood up. How's Jairus feeling now? Can you imagine? I, like, I tried briefly to, to imagine myself a little bit in Jairus' situation, and it was, it was so intense. I, I, I just kind of had to stop. I can't, like, I can't manage that kind of emotion. When Jesus stops to interact with the hemorrhaging woman, this interruption, and especially when Jairus hears that his daughter has died, all Jairus knows is Jesus took his time and it cost Jairus his daughter. But then Jesus comes and he says to his daughter, little girl, get up. And she does. Who is this Jesus? Jesus' willingness to be interrupted at one level, this is probably true for all of us, it's true for me, at one level, Jesus' willingness to be interrupted sounds heartless, doesn't it? When you imagine yourself in Jairus' shoes, what is he thinking? What is he feeling? What is he going through? If you don't know who Jesus is, it sounds awful if you don't know who he is. If you don't know that Jesus is the God of resurrection, if you don't know that Jesus is a God of new life, that all things, as the author to the Hebrews says, all things hold together by the word of his power. Think about that phrase for just a minute. The word of Jesus' power. What is a word? It's just... 
It's just a breath. Here today, gone to, like, there's nothing you can literally hang your hat on. A word is just, it's nothing. And yet Jesus can speak, and molecules and cells rearrange themselves, and hearts start beating, and neurons start firing just by the word of his power. If you don't know who Jesus is, and if you don't know that Jesus is the God of resurrection and new life, then Jesus looks heartless in this moment, doesn't he? And interruption becomes the enemy, something to be avoided and crushed at all costs. Remember, we're thinking about hurry and pace and interruption and patience an unhurried pace, a willingness to be interrupted is foolish, even to us today, if there is no resurrection from the dead. If this life is all there is, if Jesus is not coming back to make all things new and to make everything sad come untrue, like Sam says to Gandalf, then by all means, do not let your life be interrupted. Get as much as you can here and now. And don't let anybody else get between you and whatever it is you're trying to do. Because this is your one chance. Because when you're interrupted, you lose control, right? You had control of your schedule, but now your four-year-old who wants to put on his socks and shoes himself has wrestled control of your schedule away from you. And you know, if you've ever been with a four-year-old who's trying to put on their socks and shoes themselves, that there is no hurrying them. Right? Or, in a less petty example, you had control of your life And then the doctor sits you down and says, it doesn't look good. And your life is interrupted, rudely, and you're no longer in control. And maybe you get angry. Understandably so. I had plans. I had, I had dreams. I had hopes. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, if this life is all there is, then interruptions will make your world crumble. You see? But if there is resurrection, if there is new life, then interruptions become not distractions, but pregnant with possibility. Because Jesus rose from the dead, interruptions become invitations to be present, to slow down and to pay attention and to notice the world around you. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, interruptions in life become invitations to love. You see, the willingness to be interrupted to lose control, to be unhurried and patient, all of those things are acts of love. 
One author, John Mark Comer, writes in a book that hurry and love are incompatible. Hurry and love are incompatible. He also points out, and I don't know what to do with this, but it's just worth thinking on, that the root of the word hurry is the root of the same as the root of the word hurricane. You see, when you're hurried, you are by definition not present. If I'm in a rush to get from here to there, then all I'm thinking about is there. I'm not thinking about here. I'm not in the moment. I'm in another moment. I'm not in this place. I'm not present in this place. I'm in, mentally, another place. And if you interrupt me and I'm in a hurry and I don't let you, I want nothing to do with you. I'm not thinking about you. I'm not looking at you. I'm not seeing you. I'm not noticing. I just want to be there. I don't actually want to be with you. That's what hurry does in us. You're not in the moment. You're in another moment. When you're hurried, you are not present, and you cannot love if you are not present. I could not love Elliot this morning by listening to that story about that moss bug, whatever that is, if I just rushed out the door and said, I'm really sorry, sweetie, I've got to get to work, tell me later. But what does it look like when, like Jesus, we treat interruptions not as inconveniences to be avoided or obstacles to be overcome, but as gifts to be embraced? What if, what if God actually gives us interruptions in our lives as reminders to slow down and be present? Because you know this, right? The best present you can give someone is your presence. What if God gives us interruptions as invitations to love presently and in the moment? To not be afraid of missing whatever's next and instead to trust. Remember what Jesus says, don't be afraid, just trust. Just trust. What if even the interruptions are invitations to entrust our future and our control and our hurry to God, who is the author of resurrection and new life anyway, We refuse to be interrupted because we don't want to lose out. Every interruption feels like a little death. But if God is the God of new life, then what if he's giving us the interruption itself as an invitation to life? There's a Dutch uh, theologian and pastor named Henry Nouwen. He died, I don't know, 20 or so years ago. Uh, But I'll never forget reading, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something to the effect of, I spent my whole time, my whole career treating interruptions as obstacles to my ministry. And it wasn't until the very end that I realized the interruptions weren't obstacles to my ministry. The interruptions were the ministry. You see, my my unwillingness to be interrupted is my insistence that everything depends on me. I've got to get this done. I've got places to be. I've got conversations to have. I've got things to take care of. 
My agenda is what matters here. My to-do list is the one that ought to be at the top of the heap. My work is the work that's most important. But, to be blunt, am I raising the dead? (laughs) No. Are you raising the dead? What if we look to the one who is? To Jesus, who himself on the third day was raised from the dead and who is making everything sad come untrue, who is making all, behold, I am making all things new, he says in Revelation, and who invites you to join him in that. See, Jesus invites us to join him in his work, but as the theologian Kosuke Koyama a Japanese theologian pointed out, God moves at about three miles an hour. Literally, right? When Jesus was on earth, how did he get from point A to point B? He walked. The average human walks about three miles an hour. And then he clarifies in this beautiful little meditation, and he says, God walks slowly because he is love. If God is in control, we believe we is, at least we, we, we say we believe he is. If God is in control, and if he can walk slowly and be interrupted, then why can't we? No, you see, if, if new life is coming, and if the kingdom of heaven is here, in fact, here and now, as Jesus says, on earth, as it is in heaven, if there is a resurrection from the dead, not just a future eternal, like I'm going to die and then I'm going to come back, but if if somehow resurrection from the dead is something we get to practice now, then an unhurried pace and a willingness to be interrupted is not only reasonable, you might say it's required not in the sense that God will punish you if you don't, no, but, but you will miss out on his invitation to practice presence and to learn the language of love. He is the God, the God, who brings the dead back to life. And Jairus got a taste of that, a really, really sweet taste of what it looks like for the dead to be brought back to life. And it came through the interruption. Jesus invites us to participate in his resurrection. Not just by being so rushed and having to get to the next thing that we don't even realize where we've been at the end of the week. But by slowing down and by being willing to be interrupted as he was.